Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony DeLisandro. Billie's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like da 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 da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it gonna, like that's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zikazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Videos moderated by real people who review content before it's posted to the feed. I love the dance challenges. I love that it's KidSafe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids. <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. It's Monday, September 19th. I'm producer Victor Wright in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. As our attitudes towards certain drugs begin to relax, many are redefining what it means to be sober. Some drugs, such as magic mushrooms and MDMA, are being taken in smaller doses, and this action is being claimed by wellness culture. Although we only have limited research, many report beneficial effects on this microdosing. Lou Quinky, contributor to Vox, joins Oscar Ramirez for the new Soberish. Next, almost everyone has a Disney adult in their life. These superfans live and breathe the company's aesthetic, spending lots of time and money at the theme parks and buying its merchandise. Although they've been around for a long time, the term is somewhat new, along with the anti-Disney adult sentiment online, while fans mourned the park's closures and advocated for them reopening in the middle of the pandemic. E.J. Dixon, senior writer at Rolling Stone, joins Oscar Ramirez for more on the adult Disney fandom. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. She's never like tripping. It just sort of it open, opens her up a little bit so right. it makes her feel better. And she told me that she's, she's always felt way higher, quote unquote, on, on Lexapro than she ever did microdosing. Joining us now is Luke Winky, contributor to Vox. Thanks for joining us, Luke. Thanks for having me. Well, I uh, wrote an interesting article about the new sober-ish. Uh, as <laughs> we've been going through a lot of changes when it comes to drugs in our country. You know, we've, especially with marijuana, has been one of those big changes. Uh, a lot of relaxing of the attitudes and stigma towards it. Drug tests are at a record high, mostly because of marijuana. Employers are dropping these requirements as a condition of employment because the attitudes around it are relaxing. So you wrote a little bit about that, and you also talked about microdosing. You know, a lot of people are go, uh, you know, using small amounts of uh, magic mushrooms and other things just to help improve their mood. And in all of this, everybody's kind of like coming around to it. So, uh, Luke, walk us through some of this. I think the reason we want to do this story is it's kind of what you just said. Like, there definitely is like a shift in perspective for like perception on kind of drug policy in America. You really see it everywhere. There's more people using marijuana than in the past. There's more people that are pretty ambivalent about marijuana laws, like kind of in a shockingly short span of time that people become, you know, way more amenable to the idea of people using marijuana medicinally or recreationally. There's a lot of traction on 
sort of psychologists using like MDMA or psilocybin. Actually, you know, I don't actually know how that's pronounced. Magic mushrooms. It's one of those words you see written out, but I don't know how it's pronounced. <laughs> I, I've seen it as a, um, a psilocybin. Is that what I've heard? <laughs> psilocybin. All right, we'll go with that. Um, yeah, like using that in like talk therapy for like for PTSD, uh, you know, patients and things like that. And it's, it's, I think the thing I found sort of interesting as I dug into this stuff, it's, it's, weirdly kind of like bipartisan like even like a state like texas you know who has done some pretty hardline right-wing stuff and their legislator recently has kind of cleared the way to use psychedelics to study them as how they can be applied kind of medicinally so yeah that that was kind of the impetus kind of diving in and then from there i spoke to some people who have microdosed or just are using sort of things that 20 30 years ago we'd be considered to be street drugs as part of their kind of day-to-day sort of sober routine like having a spritz of uh psilocybin and uh that being part of like a what they would consider to be a sober lifestyle like those two things being on drugs and being sober the the lines i think are becoming sort of blurred there in in an interesting way well you wrote it in the article pretty well so what all these things that were once considered contraband are being claimed by wellness culture you know anything Mm -hmm. to make you feel a little bit better and it's kind of making this new definition of sobriety right and you think about things like people taking antidepressants and and whatnot and i know it helps a lot of people but a lot of people don't feel normal don't feel good after a while and so these things can be like an alternative and no one's going to say well they're on antidepressants they're high right now and you know if you're doing really low doses of the magic mushrooms i know that's a very popular one right now it might not carry you to the point of like you're high and incapacitated. And so this is kind of what we're talking about. The stigmas around some of these things are breaking down mm-hmm. and, and people are opening themselves up to it. Yeah. yeah I, I spoke to one woman who has been through kind of the whole gamut of uh, trying to make themselves sort of live better in the sort of therapeutic or medicinally acceptable way. You know, it went through years of therapy, some very much of self-help books, you know, just tried to make positive changes, you know, been through a lot of antidepressants. And she, I think she kind of told me something interesting that I think gets to the crux of the piece is that like, she feels like she started microdosing on and magic mushrooms and says that that has improved her mood, says that she never really feels high, just kind of, kind of brightens her up to, you know, the world around her. She's never like tripping. It just sort of it open, opens her up a little bit so, right. and makes her feel better. And she told me that She's always felt way higher, quote unquote, on, on Lexapro than she ever did microdosing, that she felt way more under the influence when she was going through the more sort of traditional or prescriptive path to trying to improve her mood than she did when she kind of got out into the wilderness a little bit with uh, how she was trying to make herself feel better. So, yeah, I, I think what, what you're saying is right. That like, I guess it's it's kind of trite and old school now, the idea that like, you know, you're, you know, going to. Right. Eat some magic mushrooms. You're gonna go <laughs> run into traffic or whatever. But exactly. even, even despite that, that that attitude has shifted quite dramatically in the last couple of years. And the tough thing with all of this is that the science around all of this microdosing and and even some of these other drugs is very thin right now. As we know, mm. they're all Schedule One drugs. Even marijuana is on the federal level, which is we've heard for many many years. It's always limited the amount of research that we can do. On these things. And now I know states are opening themselves up to it more so they can do that research. But that's always been a problem that it's kind Mm -hmm. of coming into this wellness culture area. But the research surrounding it is thin. We just a lot of it is anecdotal stuff that we see, you know, some limited studies that we get that show benefits. But across the board, we haven't proven those benefits yet. That's been, like you said, that's been an issue forever. It's 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 too hard to, stu- to study some of these drugs in America, they, I, especially the weirdly enough, what is it, it's a, most of the red tape is around 
cannabis to this day. Like that, that's we would both consider that to be one of the more milder, more, one of the more mainstream accepted drugs in our culture. And yet that one's always been really hard to study. Uh, interestingly, though, like I, I spoke to a few experts in drug policy and there is like a lot of again, I'm not like a doctor, so I can't really speak to the like the 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 specific specificity of what the evidence is saying. But a lot of studies have come back saying that there is a positive correlation with therapy and MDMA and therapy and yeah. psychedelics and things like that. I mean, that was that kind of took me back. The idea of someone, you know, uh, taking a party drug before going into talk therapy kind of blew my mind. But I mean, the research says what it is, you know, and uh, so I, I, I was surprised at I kind of went into the story assuming that a lot of the research was going to be pretty thin and inconclusive. And I was surprised to kind of find that that wasn't necessarily the case. Luke Winky, contributor to Vox. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billie's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like da 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 you know what i'm saying like it could have been like easier and a lot of people have asked me like how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple and what else was it gonna like that's what the song wanted thanks for listening to this episode of the crew call podcast on deadline and a lot of people that rub them along the way they saw that as a very entitled tone deaf Right. view to take while there was all the suffering going on and they were like oh look at these disney adults all they care about is like their ability to get a mickey pretzel instead of caring about you know the millions of people who are on ventilators across the country joining us now is ej dixon senior writer at rolling stone thanks for joining us ej thank you so much for having me well wanted to talk about a uh, pretty fun article you wrote up how Disney adults became the most hated group on the internet just for some frame of reference uh, I'm a grew up in Southern California all my life Disneyland is in my backyard I, I loved going to Disneyland as a kid and uh, it always holds a special place in my heart you know there's a lot of good memories there but recently there was a post on Reddit am I the a-hole forum 
that went very viral. It was about a uh, written by a bride who was having a Disney wedding, and instead of paying the money to cater the event and have you know a bunch of food for the guests, they opted to get a an appearance from Mickey and Minnie Mouse to appear at their wedding. And they were talking about it, and as I mentioned, the post went viral. Everybody got really mad. It's like, how could you do this and you know, not treat your guests to food and whatnot? It just made for this whole very funny thing, and it brought into question Disney adults. You know, these adults who just love Disney so much and the whole conversation surrounding it. So, EJ, as we get started, uh, first give us a definition of what a Disney adult is. I mean, in theory, it's any adult who loves Disney. Right. But a Disney adult is an adult who really, really, really loves Disney to the degree that their entire social media presence revolves around Disney. They go to the parks all the time. Whenever the merch rolls out, they're the first ones in line to buy the limited edition merch. It's somebody who sort of lives and breathes Disney and the company aesthetic. Right. I mean, I think we all know that type of person. For your article, I think you did uh, say you qualify yourself as a Disney adult, too. I guess technically, yeah. A big part of the trip, which I talk about in the piece, is that a lot of Disney adults are sort of classified as like childless millennials yeah. because that was a story that went viral in 2019. And, and I have a child, like, so I don't know if I technically qualify as like the purest version of the Disney adults, but I mean, everything else about it, yeah, I, I kind of check all the boxes. <laughs> All right, so let's get a little history because, like I said, you know, it's pretty fun. We all know these people. There's also the Disney gangs, which I think are pretty fascinating. You know, these are whole groups of people who, you know, get their leather jackets and patches and, you know, they name themselves. And there's, that's a whole oh, the other social subset. Club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a whole other subset. But where did we kind of start seeing the origins of what could be described as the Disney adult? It has to do uh, with Tumblr, it has to do with something called Disney bounding, you know, wearing colors of certain characters and whatnot. How did this all get started? The actual phrase is a relatively new invention, but people were making fun of adults who love Disney for decades. I was talking to a professor who told me that a lot of the coverage when Disney started unveiling like its wedding program and its honeymoon program of these new programs was basically just like skewering adults. And this was in the 90s. This was way back in the 90s who would come to the parts and being like, why, well, why would anybody want to get married next to a cartoon mouse? So, the actual excoriation of Disney adults has existed long before the phrase Disney adult actually existed. But what we think of as Disney adults, sort of like the very earnest millennials espousing their love for Disney via like Cheshire Cat gifts, that aesthetic was sort of cemented on Tumblr in the early 2010s, which is where a lot of fandoms on the internet come from. And the phrase Disney adult actually started catching on in 2020, like in the midst of the pandemic, pretty much, which is ironic because the parks were closed during the pandemic, right? Like you wouldn't think that that would be a time where the hatred, you know, the, the discourse around the Disney adults would be so high. But it was also a time when a lot of people who really love the parks were advocating for the parks to reopen sort of in the midst of this pandemic that was taking a lot of people's lives and it was causing tumult, you know, throughout the country. And a lot of people that rubbed them around the way, they saw that as a very entitled, tone-deaf right. view to take while there was all the suffering going on. And they were like, oh, look at these Disney adults. All they care about is like their ability to get a Mickey pretzel instead of caring about you know, the millions of people who are on ventilators across the country. So that's kind of really where the meme began in earnest. 
Yeah, and, and as you mentioned, going back to the Tumblr thing a little bit, as kind of the fandom started growing into this internet age, right, and the internet culture and all that, the interesting thing, right, Disney bounding, because uh, adults aren't allowed to wear costumes at the parks, right? They don't want to confuse them for the some of the actors and whatnot. But, exactly, but what yeah. people were doing is this term called Disney bounding, where they're kind of an informal cosplay. They'll take the colors of a Cinderella and work that into their outfit for the day. And as you mentioned, right, the, this is all kind of a whole fandom thing. This is where that started growing and the pictures started going and, and it kind of formed into what uh, later the term became a Disney adult. Yeah, it wasn't explicitly linked to, like, the meme Disney adult, and it wasn't exclusive to, like, adults, Disney, like, Disney fans or adult Disney fans per se. But it was one of the first activities that really brought to light just how hardcore grown-up Disney fans are. Because when most people think of Disney fans, they think of little kids, right? Or they think of families right. who are going to their parks with little kids. And yet, here was this whole subculture on Tumblr of people dressing as, Tinkerbell or dressing as Ursula or dressing as Maleficent, but doing it in a very subtle way so as to avoid the wrath of Disney security. So I think I think people found that kind of subversion very funny and also a little bit ridiculous on its face. Like these are the lengths that adult Disney fans go to to express their fandom. And that's perfect uh, leading into this next part, the cringe factor. So looking into this concept of the Disney adult, you spoke to a lot of people, academics, internet culture, fandom experts, just to kind of get a sense of how it all started and what it's become and, and why people, why they are the subject of so much ire on the internet. But in a lot of the people that you spoke to, you said that the word cringe came up so many times. So what, what does that mean? What, what are we looking at there? A cringe is a word that has been applied very liberally across the spectrum by Zoomers to millennials in particular, which I think is a big part of what's going on here that I didn't talk about at length in the article. But there's this whole ongoing meme, it's like sort of tongue in cheek, sort of not, that Zoomers are very embarrassed by what they see as like over earnestness on behalf of millennials. Just like these very these outward expressions of like untrammeled emotion over what are essentially corporate totems, right? You know, they, they, they like to make fun of millennials' love of Harry Potter a lot, for instance. And I think that Disney adults are kind of the culmination of that, of Gen Z's sort of disgust with millennials' over-earnestness, and cringe is kind of the first word that they use to malign that. And then so couple that with, uh, you know, why there's a lot of anger out there. When we talk about a lot of these things, it's okay to be a fan of things and whatnot, but there's a lot of money associated with this. And really to yeah. kind of be one of these, you know, hardcore Disney adults, as you mentioned, right? Buy all the merch when it comes out. Go on vacation to the various parks. I mean, at minimum, these can be thousands of dollars. There's this money associated with it and how much people have to spend to be considered in the top tiers of these <laughs> fandoms, let's say. Yeah, I spoke to a lot of people who, and a lot of people criticize the fandom for this reason. You know, it tends to skew, at least outwardly, very white, very upper middle class, because there's a self-selecting factor here, right? Like, the park tickets cost hundreds of dollars, you know, resort, like, trip packages cost upwards of thousands of dollars. Like, you can only really enjoy the parks to the extent that Disney adults do if you have the economic capital to do so. And I think that's a really fair criticism. It's also a lot of people are very uncomfortable with the fact that Mickey Mouse is sort of this totem of this giant media conglomerate and this multi-billion dollar 
brand. And, and I think, you know, that's a very fair criticism, too, because obviously Disney is a multi-billion dollar conglomerate and has done a lot of questionably ethical things that, you know, we don't have to discuss at length here, but are very easy to research and look into. So I, I think that's a fair criticism. But at the same time, I mean, pretty much any fandom is a capitalistic enterprise, right? I mean, sure. you look at people who are going to Star Trek conventions. And so then uh, speaking to other, uh, you know, Disney adults and, and people that are really, really into this, uh, you know, what do they say about reactions to all of this? You know, for a lot of them, you know, they say, hey, I have so many memories of Disney and it just really brings me a lot of pleasure. It is an escape. It's this fantasy escape that I choose to live in. And even for them, there's like tears. There's like levels to it saying, well, you know, I'm not as bad as, as certain uh, of these people that are doing this and whatnot. So even for them, there's a lot of hesitance to like full out uh, declare yourself a fan, a Disney adult and all that. Pretty much every Disney adult I spoke to, like, freely self-identified as, as a Disney adult, but was like very embarrassed to do so. I would sort of place myself in that category. And it's right. because there are a lot of people in the fandom who take it too far. And, you know, there are people like that. You know, everybody was very quick to distance themselves from the person who wrote the uh, Reddit, am I the post, you know, saying, oh, well, this is like terrible behavior. Like, I would never do this. I would never be a bride who would refuse to feed my guests at the expensive like hiring mickey or minnie but at the same time everybody acknowledged that there is a streak of entitlement that runs within the fandom there's this idea that everybody is pursuing their own individual fantasy their own individual like idealized experience of what they think the park should be or what they think disney should be and that anybody who gets in the way of that is sort of changing that or compromising that like that's an undeniable aspect of the fandom so i think And a lot of Disney adults who are, you know, at the very least critical of the company, and there, and there are some that aren't, but most people are. They have enough perspective to see that there is something a little bit cringe about this. There is something a little bit embarrassing about this. But ultimately, what it comes down to for them is, like, who cares? You know, is, is this hurting anybody? Like, the world is really hard. Like, if, if I can go to the parks for a day and ride on Jungle Cruise and have a Dole Whip and forget, like, all the bills I have to pay and all the stressors of everyday life, then, like, how does this harm anybody? And ultimately, I think that's that's true. E.J. Dixon, senior writer at Rolling Stone, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories you are interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by yours truly, Victor Wright, engineered by Tony Sorrentino, and hosted by Oscar Ramirez. I'm producer Victor Wright, and this was your Daily Dive. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zikazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Videos moderated by real people who review content before it's posted to the feed. I love the dance challenges. I love that it's KidSafe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids. (laughs) Download the Zigazoo app today.
Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast.